This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart, and I'm very forgiving, but, like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Eva Longoria. I am so excited to welcome you to this very special limited series in the Heights, El Sueñito, the story of one of the most groundbreaking shows in the history of musical theater and how it now has become equally groundbreaking motion picture, releasing June 11th on Warner Brothers. And I I, I, I can't even contain myself. When y'all asked me to do this and whenever uh, this was like being put together, I was like, yes, yes. Yes, yes. Can I act out every role? And uh, can I can I just sing every song? Uh, it's the most amazing musical. It's the most amazing project. And uh, this particular episode, we're going to talk uh, later about the motion picture, but we're going to first start kind of about uh, talking about themes. And then we're going to talk about the actual musical and when that happened. Um, and then about the movie at the end. So we'll, we're going to pace ourselves. I know I sound crazy right now, but we will pace ourselves. Uh, but this particular episode is about home. And it's a big theme in the movie. And I'm excited to talk to everyone who's uh, on this podcast right now. Uh, we, of course, we have Lin-Manuel Miranda. Hello, longtime fan, first time caller. Hello. <laughs> you have won a mattress. Uh <laughs> 
<laughs> We're so excited to have you. Um, I, I have so much to ask you, but how are you doing? What's going on? Where are you calling from? Uh, I am I am well, uh, and I am I'm calling you from upstate New York, where I am editing uh, my directing debut, uh, Tick Tick Boom, that'll come out later this year. Uh, but uh, I'm thrilled to be uh, on this call with all my favorite folks. <laughs> uh, with so much is going on with you, I can't wait to see that. Um, but I'm so excited because this is a brand new podcast that we're doing for iHeart, which is part of a larger network called My Cultura. And what better way to launch? My Cultura podcast than with this project, with these wonderful visionaries that are going to uh, be on with us. I think Latinos are long overdue for representation and podcasting. And so it's really exciting to be a part of it. Amazing. It's a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Well, today we're going to talk about the, the genesis of this remarkable show in the Heights and how it grew out of your own personal experience growing up in in Inwood, Washington Heights, New York. And how it's been made into this groundbreaking movie. Um, but I don't think we can tell the whole story without two of your longtime collaborators. Indeed. I feel like we won't have the complete story. So I want to bring on writer-producer Kiara Alegria Judes, who wrote the book In the Heights. Hey. Defi we should define what we mean by book. Uh, uh, oh, please, please, because <laughs> it's the most single confusing term in my life. Um, you know, everyone's like, oh, I can't find your book on Amazon. You know, people think that the book of a musical, understandably, is a book that the musical was adapted from. In fact, it's just the script and the story. It's it's like another word for libretto. Okay. Okay, great. I'm, I'm so happy you did that because I was about to go on Amazon and look for the book. Uh, <laughs> and we have executive music producer Alex Lacamoire. Is that how I yeah. say it? Yeah, I, I say it with the French pronunciation exactly like that. Yes. Oh, great. Um, well, you and Lynn have been thick as thieves for a very long time. Uh, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Now, are you all both in New York as well? I'm uptown. I'm in Washington Heights. Um, you know, once I wrote the show, I was like, I mean, we got to it's we got to move there. So um, I had spent a long time kind of roaming the streets and like riding the subway back and forth in the area writing and um, on the subway. So, it you know, it made sense. So this is where my family is. That is amazing. And Alex, where are you? I'm on the Upper West Side, Manhattan. OK, is that it's, I'm not I don't know New York. I'm probably one of the few people that don't know New York. Does that mean you're bougie? Alex? <laughs> I guess it depends on what part. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, I think a big part of the genesis of this musical is there is a lot of New Yorkers who think the the world stops on the Upper West Side or the world stops in Harlem and aren't even aware that the A train goes all the way up to 207th Street. Um, so, you know, a lot of this was about putting us on the map in a literal way. We, yeah. you know, I... I can see the George Washington Bridge out my window. So that's something that people know exists uptown. It's like, oh, I live near the George Washington Bridge. And they're like, OK, so I, we're associated with traffic to people who don't really know much more than the uh, than the bridge. <laughs> I do. I guess I do know New York by bridges as well. I'm like, oh, yeah, the Brooklyn Bridge. OK, yeah. OK, great. That's that's a, a good marker. But, you know, in the movie, which we're going to talk about the movie later, I want to jump ahead of myself. But I love how you act. You guys actually did the map. Like to show where what you're talking about. That was very helpful. It's that Nina line. It's, you know, she mm -hmm. used to think that the subway map was the map of her life and that she lived at the top of the world, which was the top of the subway map. Um, right. That's a fairly autobiographical lyric. 
<laughs> Lynn, did you grow up uh, in Inwood? Yeah, I grew up north of Washington Heights. Washington Heights was downtown to me <laughs> uh, growing up. I grew up um, off Dykeman Street, which is the second to last stop on the A train. Um, and um, my, my parents are still there. And um, yeah, and, and I took piano lessons on 181st Street and um, really kind of grew up um, in this tiny Latin American neighborhood that happened to be in New York City. Uh, when I was growing up, is largely a Dominican neighborhood, but a lot of the sort of older residents were Puerto Rican and Cuban, and it was sort of many waves of Latino um, migration uh, in this neighborhood, so much so that my abuela could go to any store uh, on our block and, and be understood and never have to speak English uh, on that block. And so... Um, I always just knew that I felt like I was sitting on a secret growing up, like I was sitting in this very special place. You knew that. You knew that. You felt that. It like had texture to you. Yeah, hundred percent. And I, you know, again, I, I I got into a a gifted public school when I was very young, and so I I, I was code switching. I, I was doing what Nina did in college when I was like six years old. Like I'm right. I'm now shuddling from you know two hundredth Street to the Upper East Side, and and that's when that bifurcation that so many of us experienced happened for me. I was Lin-Manuel at home. I became Lin at school. I spoke Spanish at home. I spoke English at school. Um, and then you kind of figure out what is the best version of yourself for any given room. And I think In the Heights, when I started writing in college, was really the beginning. And again, this is like Kiara's term, not mine, because she always has the best words for it. It was like the beginning of figuring out how to bring all of myself into the room. It was br like bringing the Latin culture I grew up with into the musical theater that I loved and the cast albums I memorized. It was really kind of me trying to write my way into a situation where I could be my fullest self. Kiara, you can speak to this too, because you guys collaborated on this so closely. Um, did you feel what Lynn felt, which was like, oh yeah, I can write yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my version of it, you know, I'm, I'm born and raised in Philly and like, Kind of like Lynn said, all of who I was made sense until I was about five years old. And then my parents, uh, my mom is a brown Boricua woman. My dad is a white Jewish man. They separated. And all of a sudden, these parts of me that just went together very naturally were literally separated in my life. And so mm. I think that sense of, you know, choosing which is the right way to be in which room you're in. I mean, that was even my family life, you know. Um, but I was raised by my mom. I was raised by my stepfather, who's also Puerto Rican. He's from Barranquitas. My mom is from Arecibo. And, you know, I thought all these different, I thought like one checkbox per room. And when, as you get older and you mature, you realize like, no, I, I can bring more of myself into this room. Whoever else is in the room, they can handle it. Like they're grown ups too, you know? And I remember the first time Lynn and I met and we're kind of deciding if we wanted to collaborate. That part mm -hmm. of our history, really, we really connected over that. Wow. You guys were like a match made in heaven, just like Alex. I feel like Alex, It's I've seen you and then Manuel hang out. And I'm like, you guys speak a different language. <laughs> like, <laughs> The language of nerds. <laughs> the language of music nerds, right? <laughs> like, you are just as genius as Lynn. And, and uh, oh, tell you. me how you guys came to me. Uh, we met because there were some mutual friends that I had met in Miami, which is where I, I spent my teens. Mm -hmm. And there were some uh, actors in Miami that I had done some shows with. 
and they did an early workshop of In the Heights. Um, and this was before I was even a part of In the Heights. And they had said to Lin-Manuel, hey, you should meet Alex. He's from Miami. He's Cuban. He's a pianist. He's an arranger. Like, you guys would hit it off. And uh, they introduced us, and, and they were right. You know, once I, uh, I, I often tell people that it wasn't until I met Lin-Manuel in New York that I felt like I had a certain part of my life brought back to me. And what I mean by that is mm. I was born in L.A., right? And there's not a big Cuban uh, community in, in L.A. No, no. We moved to Miami. There is a big Cuban community there, right? So I got used to what that's like, right? And you get spoiled thinking to yourself that everybody speaks Spanish. You get spoiled. You think that there's going to be, you know, storefronts written in, in Spanish everywhere you go. And I left Miami to go to college. I went to Boston and no one really knew that I was Latino at all, right? You know, people would like flip out when they'd see me pick up the phone and start talking to my mom in Spanish. They had no idea. Um, right. And then, so I just didn't really have a lot of like uh, um, Latin influence around me. But then I come to New York and I meet Lin-Manuel and then we start amassing all these amazing collaborators and Kiara comes on board and we have all these actors and all of a sudden, like, you know, we're celebrating what makes us us. And in a way that just felt like home, the very thing you were talking about, all these elements that um, I just didn't realize how important they were to me until I didn't have them. Right. Yeah. Try try going to Starbucks and ordering not in Spanish in Miami. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. I was like, oh, OK. Yeah. Oh, I got to pull out my Spanish here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of things you take you take for granted. And I think there's so many of us that straddle a hyphen. Right. Like Puerto Rican American, yes. Cuban American, yes. Mexican American. And, you know, like Lynn was talking about that code switching, navigating that identity is uh, it's heavy. But then when you find a group of people who are just like, oh, OK, not only you feel like you found your tribe, but they feel yeah. like home. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I felt when I met Lynn and Kiara. There's just something about it. Oh, here's a. We understand what that code switching is like, but we understand kind of having to, you know, as we've been talking, live that that dual life in that way. Because, yeah, I, I feel very Americanized in that way, right? Like, right. I, you know, when you're at the dinner table, dad's like, okay, speak Spanish at the dinner table, but you can speak English anywhere else, right? Yeah. And then, yes, you know, like going to the parties where music is blasting salsa, but then going home and listening to my Led Zeppelin and Beatles records or whatever, you know, it's just, it's very, you yeah. know, let's try to find uh, how to, uh, you know, all, all those things make me me. But yeah, there's definitely that kind of hyphen in between some of that stuff that you try to bridge. Well, you know, it's so funny, Alex, because I, when I grew up in Texas, same thing. We spoke Spanish. I mean, we didn't really speak that much Spanish, but there were certain words I didn't know the English word for. Like to this day, I, I say sala, like where are the keys? My keys are in the sala, you yeah. know, because I'm like, what is, what is sala? And yeah. they're like, like living room. And I'm like, oh, right, right. living room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or mancha. Like if I, I had these um, sunspots on my face and I went to the dermatologist and I go, I have these manchas. I don't know what you, these man, like I could, there were places that I got so stuck in my, I couldn't, there was no code switching for it. Right. Like mm -hmm. they're, that just the word that it is. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. Lynn, I want to, I want your version of that story. What, like they both felt like, oh, okay. I found my, I found my other, my other half of my orange, as we say in Spanish. <laughs> um, yeah, well, it's funny. Kiara's uh, arrival in my life was very heralded. Um, everyone who met her before me was like, I think you should meet her. I want to see what you feel like when you meet her. First, it was uh, Jill Furman, who is a producer who was already involved with In the Heights. Um, and she said, I met Kiara 
I think you should meet her. And no one wanted to say anything. I was like, I, I was feeling very intimidated before our first meeting. Uh, because again, Kiara like, went to Yale for music composition. She had an MFA from Brown, like went to grad school. Play. I was like, what does she need me for? <laughs> like, she can do all my jobs <laughs> very easily. Um, and then Tommy met with her, Tommy Kale, our director. And again, said the exact same thing. I think you should meet her. Um, and, and I walked in kind of intimidated with my scrappy little... 80 minute one act show. And it, it was sort of like this podcast. Like we just immediately started talking about family. We met at the now extinct market cafe on uh, ninth Avenue. Um, and it became, it, it, it just became very familial and familiar very quickly. Um, and it was just like a, you know, it was like just meeting an old friend for the first time. And and I'll never forget sort of saying goodbye to Kiara at the full, at the Port Authority stop. I sort of like, okay, I'm going to get on the train. Goodbye. I gave her a hug. Goodbye. I went down into the A train, like ran through and came up the other side. I did like a fake goodbye because I couldn't wait to take the train all the way to 207th Street home to tell Tommy like, this is it. She's going to ride it with us. She's the one. <laughs> um, I was so excited that I met a kindred spirit mm. um, who understood, um, who had the same lens on their community that I did. Um, mm -hmm. One of love and one of like, uh, I want to tell these stories too. Um, and and so I, I couldn't wait the 40 minutes it would have taken me to get home on the train. <laughs> so I just like did a fake goodbye, came up another thing and called Tommy. Um, and, um, and, you know, it, it was a similar thing with, with Alex, Alex came recommended from actors who were doing readings of In the Heights for us in the basement of the drama bookshop. Um, Janet DeCall, who would go on to originate the role of Carla on Broadway, was like, well, I went to high school with this guy named Alex Lacko, and he's a genius, and, and he's playing, and he's working on a show called Bat Boy, but I think he's going to be working on <laughs> Wicked. Um, so already, like, Alex was the grown-up in the room. He was the one who was actually already making theater on a professional level. We were, you know, former students in the basement of a bookshop. Um, and, and again, it was that similar thing. He just, he, he fell in with us um, so immediately. And, 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 and Kiara and Alex really entered uh, our lives around the same time. Um, before that, it was me, Tommy Kale, and Bill Sherman, who had gone to college with me and worked on all of my uh, musical projects in college. And, and it, we, we very quickly dubbed ourselves Voltron. It was like, finally, like the five parts of the lion could like make something <laughs> greater. Um, but but I, I, I remember that summer very, very well. Oh, my gosh. Well, Kiara, maybe I want you to speak to that. When you sat down to write, so you meet with Lynn and he like emotionally vomits on you. <laughs> it was, we vomited on each other emotionally, in all <laughs> oh, yeah. fairness. We were a mess. <laughs> um, what, what were you like, this is what I want to get across? Or like, was there a fundamental definition of home or this idea of like roots? Or what was like your thematic drive when you sat down to write it? So... For me, the definition of home was largely, I mean, one of the things Lynn and I bonded over was the stories of our fathers, even though they're very different. There were some commonalities. They were just kind of naturally out in the community, building the community they wanted to live in. They were really mm. doing that thing, building the world you want to, to have, you know. Um, my father is more of a businessman. He's a contractor. You know, he went to the job course. So he he 
he does things with his hands, but he was doing that and he was, you know, creating jobs in the community. So we did bond over that. But I think for me, one of the things I was most excited about that for me is community is the women. So I was like, okay, I want to really, and there were, the women were already there. They were in Lynn's script, but I was like, I want to build them up. I want to make them as strong as the men. Like, you know, I want to know what makes Vanessa more than kind of brassy and sassy, but what makes her real and grounded, what what she's struggling against, what she's going towards. And all that stuff was already there, but that's just my natural inkling. So I, I gravitated towards that, towards the story of Nina. Um, and the other the other thing is that, you know, when when I came on board, I was like, rather than this be the story of individual, you know, heroes or lead characters, to me, it felt like this was the story of the, the community was the lead character and how they would, mm. you know, celebrate together, how they would go their different ways and either leave or bring that community with them as they left, how they would stay but define themselves as individuals. So everyone has a different answer to how to be a part of the community, but they're they're doing they're, you know, forging those paths together and in concert with each other, too. That is such a, a beautiful way to put it. And it's so amazing that you thought about the gender lens. Yeah, so there were already, like Vanessa already had It Won't Be Long Now. Paciencia mm -hmm. Fe was kind of like an opera when I arrived. So it's not that they were missing. It's just, it was like, I want to, that's the thread I really, really want to follow. Um, and so that was, that was super exciting. Yeah. You know, I, my family just personally was very, very matriarchal and, you know, it's many generations in one room and it's mostly women and it's a lot of life and it's a lot of points of view. It's a lot of different versions of what strength is. Some are very humble, some are very loud. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it was just really fun to dig in on that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I also, I come from a similarly matriarchal family. Like my family in Puerto Rico revolved around my dad's mom. She ran the travel agency in town. She knew when people were going and when people were staying because she set up all their plane tickets. Um, and no, he arrived. He arrived three days ago. He's here. Right. Yeah. No. No. He's here. Oh no. She left. <laughs> um, and and so like it, there was that that my dad was coming from, and then there was also his grandmother. He would tell the story about how his grandmother ran the house and like. Everyone gate like people would marry into the family, go into the house, and then give all their checks to his grandmother, and then she would kind of redistribute. Um, like so, I, I'm just very familiar um, with that. But but what, you know, I think the biggest shift that happened when Kiara came on board again, like. The college version really reflects where I was at 19, which was like obsessed with romantic relationships. It was sort of a romantic, it was all romantic storylines set against the backdrop of Washington Heights. Mm -hmm. And I'd grown up, I'd moved back uptown and it was like, well, wait, why is this really set in Washington Heights? And I think mm -hmm. Kiara and I together, and Kiara really brought it into focus of like, let's focus on this block. What are the businesses on this block? And, and like, where are they going to be at the beginning and where are they going to be at the end? And that notion of home that you mentioned, that really was finally the word we circled around because we looked at Fiddler on the Roof a lot. We looked at other musicals mm. that are about communities undergoing change. And Jerome Robbins drilled into the writers of that show. He was a genius director. And he said, what's the show about? In one word, what's the show about? And they said, tradition. And he said, that's your opening number. Stop writing all these other things. That's your opening number. And, wow. and for us, 
a big part of the process was we've got all of these characters in search of a story and we've got all these businesses um, that existed before the storylines that you now see existed and what are they all struggling with? And and that became home, which is a loaded word when you are first generation, when you are second generation, when when home is somewhere else to your parents. Um, and so that that became sort of the the, the word we, we circled everything around. Right. Well, I, I do want to talk about your early influences um, in theater because I've heard you tell this story a lot of times about like why even the why you created in the Heights because you didn't see you on Broadway. Um, can you touch upon that? And then I want to go into the musical aspects of like, you know, non-traditional hip hop <laughs> into musicals. But t- t- so, so like you were talking about, you know, Fiddler on the Roof or what were some of your things that you memorized and you were like, oh, yeah, I be- well, yeah, m- m- again, like our family was like most families. We didn't fall in love with Broadway musicals from seeing Broadway shows. We didn't have the money, um, but we fell in love via cast albums. Like, I think my parents have a like this story that like on their second date, they realized they both had the vinyl of Man of La Mancha. And they went, oh. <laughs> um, and on their wedding day, went to go see Runaways by Lizzie Suedos on Broadway, which is like a crazy depressing musical about runaway children. But like, that's how much they love musicals. Um, And so I grew up memorizing the stuff they played. It was Camelot, Men of La Mancha, My Fair Lady, like the, the great sort of 60s and 70s stuff. And then the show that took me from loving musicals and then again, I fell in love by doing musicals in high school and in elementary school. Like I got to be in Godspell. I got to be in Pirates of Penzance. And um, and then when I was 17 years old, on my 17th birthday, I saw Rent on Broadway. And it was the first contemporary musical I had ever seen. They all took place in some other land and some other place. Les Mis, Phantom, they're all in Europe. <laughs> and... It was like, this was written by a young guy. It takes place now. It takes place Mm. downtown. And it's so clearly written from a place of love about this community of artists. Um, And and also, I have to say, like, there was a part of it that felt like a personal indictment because there's this character in Rent named Mark, and he's always got a camera rolling, and he's kind of documenting his community. And at one point, one of the other characters turns to him and says, you hide in your work. You pretend to create and detach. You know, you pretend to create and observe when you really detach. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was a very neurotic high schooler who always had a VHS camcorder on my arm. I was Mark. I was that kid who's like found it easier to film his friends than actually be with his friends and hang out with them. <laughs> um, and so I was like, oh, he's talking to me. Um, and so I started writing one act musicals in high school uh, because of the influence of Rent. And and a couple of things happened at the same time. Uh, you know, like in the Heights is the explosion of a lot of different things. One, my senior year, one of my musical heroes, Paul Simon, wrote a Broadway musical called The Cape Man. And it starred two of my other heroes, three of my other heroes, um, Anita Nazario, Mark Anthony, and Ruben Blades. Like, that is top 10 of my favorite artists all working on the same thing. And I went, holy shit, here comes my dream show. Yeah. And I saw it three times in previews. And it died on arrival. It only lasted 61 shows. And the even more heartbreaking thing was there's gorgeous music in it. It takes place in the exact same location and era as West Side Story. It's Uh 
about a true life story about these gang members in the 1950s who were Puerto Rican. And, and it's like, God, can, I think this subsection of Latinos has been very well represented <laughs> on Broadway. Like we two major musicals about like gang members in the 1950s on the <laughs> west side of New York. Um, right. So it was this like gut punch, really. Like mm-hmm. I took it really personal of like, like no one's going to write your dream show. Those are your favorite artists and they didn't make your dream show. And, um, and I think I spent two years of my life trying to fix Cape Man in my head. Well, maybe if you don't do it and maybe you don't, maybe you do it in flashback. Maybe if you start in prison and then like, I finally just started writing in the Heights. Like, can we be more fully ourselves? Can we tell right. different stories? Right. Um, and, and I started writing that my, my sophomore year in college. Yeah. It was me trying to write a full length show for the first time and trying to get out of the shadow of West Side Story and Cape Man and all the right. other times we had a knife in our hands. Right. Can we be something else, please? Right. Like, yeah. Within yeah. this genre, I love so much. Um, right. And I knew it was possible because I saw Rent and and that was like a very contemporary story about that guy's friends. Yeah. Yeah. Alex, you, you have a similar story as far as uh, representation and musicals? Um, you know, I'll, I'll say this. For me, hearing a demo of In the Heights for me was a revelation because, you know, I had heard about the Manuel, I, you know, I think I had met Tommy. I, I don't think I'd even met him in person yet, but I know I was handed a cassette tape of a, a recording of a performance <laughs> that they had done. This is when my recordings were still on an eight track. What? Are we that old? We're not. <laughs> we're yeah. talking 2002. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. I pop in the cassette, I press play. First thing I hear is the sound of like a hip hop beat playing, played on buckets, like, you know, like on a corner. <laughs> Yeah. And then I hear like this Puerto Rican dude rapping over the buckets and I'm hearing like these over the bar line rhymes. I'm hearing these complex like inter rhymes and stuff. I'm like, oh my God, this is like amazing. And, <laughs> and I'm hearing songs with titles like No Me Meto. You know, I'm like, oh my God. It's like, I, I feel <laughs> like I can like understand like where this person's coming from and, and, and what this is. And like, wow, there's Spanglish in the song. It, like, I don't know. It just really... Uh, I just felt the charge right away. And it's one of those things like when you hear uh, music uh, from a show for the first time and you see yourself in it and like, oh my God, I need to be involved with this. And that's just what it felt like. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, one of the things I love about Le-Manuel is that, you know, around the time that we met, right? Like here's a dude who is enjoying the new Eminem album as much as he's enjoying the cast recording of Light in the Piazza that just came out, you know, as much as he's enjoying, or we're talking about Weezer or or whatever, like all these like disparate styles and they're all him. And I just love that who he is and and what he knows just comes out in his writing in a way that just feels natural. And he's never putting anything on. He's never like, you know, trying to write uh, in the style of uh, like in an homage in a way to be like, oh, here's a, he's just so I don't know about. It. I'm going to try to do that. No, he knows the style. He is the style. And I just yeah. love that there's just a, a, a fluidity in what comes out. And it there's always a hook. It's always like amazing lyrics. It's always complex. Mm-hmm. And it's always like a, um, a sex, accessible, all those things. So yeah, um, yeah I, I just, I know for me that anytime I would hear the compositions that he was doing, I would just be like, yeah, this is amazing. M- more of that, please. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Um, well, uh, let's talk about that because, you know, Lynn, I, I feel like 
you have created this non-traditional um, musical with hip hop and really just the kinds of things that you were listening to as a kid. Like you were like, this is this is, you know, this is what I like. I kind of want to put it in. Um, and for me, I feel like, you know, hip hop's all about words and you are brilliant at combining words, which I felt because I didn't grow up with theater but the little theater, I was in Wind in the Willows when I was in elementary. I was Who'd a weasel. You play? I was a weasel. I didn't have a line. Yeah. <laughs> I was a dancing weasel. My mom's like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't go down this route. Uh, and I, but I remember just being punched in the gut and, and my heart pounding uh, uh, when I watched in the Heights because of the words, like each and Hamilton as well, but each sentence is loaded. And what I remembered about musical theater was they were like, I'm going to the store to get some milk. Like it took so long to get to the point of the song or the story. And your every single line moves through through story and and rhyme and spanglish like it was so it was just too much for for my senses to absorb um but in hindsight it feels like yeah this is a natural fit for musical theater people should always do theater and hip-hop so at what time uh or what was the reaction from people obviously like like alex when you first started writing musical theater with with that music yeah, well, it's it's a great point. I, I again, I have to like doff my cap to Jonathan Larson, who really was like, his whole thesis statement was popular music and musical theater used to be friends. <laughs> you used to go to the theaters, you know, in in the early part of the 20th century to go hear the hit songs you heard on the radio, to hear the new Irving Berlin song, or to hear the new Gershwin tune in that review, and they used to be one and the same. And at a certain point, rock and roll happened and musical theaters specialized. Um, yeah. And I think that's to the benefit of musical theater. You know, like the fact that Stephen Sondheim can come along and write a musical about a uh, homicidal barber. Um, like you can never say again, like, oh, that's not a good idea for a musical because he ju- he and Andrew Lloyd and Andrew Lloyd Webber was like, yeah, cats. That's the whole idea. It's cats. And they all sing about what kind of cats they are. And like that can run forever. Like they just like, I think musical theater expanded to be able to tell a lot more stories. But Jonathan Larson was very much like, and we can be friends with pop music again, because my favorite pop Mm -hmm. songs tell stories. And for me, my favorite hip hop songs tell stories. Um, My favorite like hip hop artists like Biggie and Jay-Z, like I was always keyed into the storytelling aspect. Mm -hmm. In addition to the dazzling wordplay, uh, and the rhymes and, and and similarly with with Latin music, like mm-hmm. uh, the the album I remember most well from my parents' collection in vinyl was this picture of Ruben Blades naked in blue with his band looking up, and the the title was Buscando America, and those songs are all storytelling songs. They're like mm-hmm. Jim Steinman in Spanish. They're these six minute epics um, yeah. about these different. Latino stories. And yeah. so again, it just, it, it, it made sense to me to try to bring that to the musical theater I love. It was just like, oh, I get to fit in more information per bar and I get to um, use flow to illuminate character. Usnavi raps very differently from Benny who raps very differently from Sonny. And again, I'd like go on to do even more of that with, with Hamilton to really use flow to illuminate character. Mm. Um, but it was so fun um, 
seeing how much I could pack in. Like there's a lyric in Carnaval um, where uh, Carla goes, my dad is Dominican Cuban. My mom is from Chile and PR, which means, which means I'm Chile Dominican. Rican. But I always say I'm from Queens. I'm from Queens. That, that's like a microcosm of the whole show, yeah. uh, right? Like if we are all hyphenates and we're all from somewhere, how do we define ourselves and what do we pass on? Um, yeah. So it's it's a funny, it's a good line with a funny punchline, but it also is like yeah. the show in miniature. Yeah, yeah. I would think that you burn through story that way, but no, you, you, you get so much information out in a way that you need to, whether it's like, I've got to hit the emotion right now. I've got, you know, in that same song, you know, when Usnavi comes and then uh, Vanessa comes and she's mad and everybody has so many different emotions within this same song. It's like, it, it's the most beautiful song. Alex, did you, did you feel that way when you, like you said, you first heard In the Heights and you were like, oh my God, I get this. But were you nervous about hip hop or were you like, boom, we found it. We're doing this. Lynn's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yes, Lynn's a genius. I, I definitely said that. Um, you know, I, I don't have this huge hip hop uh, uh, background. Like, you know, the, the stuff I listened to as I was growing up, like when hip hop was really at its zenith, I was kind of more like on the alternative rock side of things. And, you know, I, yes, I listened to Beastie Boys in high school. Yes, I listened to Black Sheep. You know, like there are definitely things that, that influenced me. But I really gained a real appreciation for hip hop through Lin-Manuel. Because mm -hmm. of, you know, again, I had such immense respect for him and, and still do. And when we could talk about how much we love this Jason Robert Brown song, and then he would like, you know, like I said, just press play and then just start rapping along to Biggie on this whole rap. I'm like, oh my God, how does this guy know that music as intimately as he knows Camelot? Like I had not seen someone <laughs> like that in my life. And right. uh, that just like makes you pay attention. And then like you, you just, as a musician, like you just want to know what wave he's on so you can just catch that. So it definitely like made me look at that, uh, uh, appreciate the music and, and buy more albums and really like pour over it and just try to understand what makes Lin Lin just so I could try to keep up with him. Right. And then Kiara, did you, did you grow up with hip hop or did you like it? Or what was your take on, on this when you heard it or read it? Cause as, as the writer, I was, I don't know how it works. Like, do you just write the words and then Lin inserts, insert music here? <laughs> it's way more like messy and organic than that. I mean, yeah. I was I was super <laughs> excited when I heard the hip hop because yeah, I did grow up with it being from West Philly before the roots were the roots, before they were on Power 99 FM. They were on the street corner on my walk to Clark Park and they were singing past the popcorn. And I was like, that sounds cool. Um, <laughs> you know, so it was part of my life too. I wasn't steeped into it in the way that Lynn was, but it was very much part of the landscape. But I loved using that vocabulary. I mean, actually, I lived in West Philly, which was historically a middle class and working class black neighborhood and a kind of diverse first generation immigrant neighborhood. And then my extended family was in North Philly, which was just El Barrio. It was just Boricua. And then as I grew older, more Dominican, Central American, South American. And so actually that kind of merging of hip hop and Latino music kind of reflected the map of my life, um, which I loved. And, and what it looked like in terms of how we actually do it, the nuts and bolts, Lynn used to live um, in Inwood when we first started working together. So we'd either hang at my apartment back then or we'd hang up at his apartment and he'd be like skateboarding up and down the hallway. We would, we would have a task at hand, like, okay, let's look at Nina and Benny. How, what what happens when they wake up together the morning after, right? So what does that look like? 
And, you know, Lynn's skateboarding up and down his hallway. I'm kind of writing in my corner. And if, if I have an interesting idea, if I have an interesting bit of dialogue or an interesting little monologue that has an idea, I might hand it to him and he might be like, oh, that might be a cool idea for a song. Let me take that. Get back to you later. Um, so and and vice versa. I stole I stole songs from him and turned them into scenes, too. There's a scene um, where Nina and her parents get in a big fight about what happened while she was off at school. And we had tried that as a song for a long time. And then somehow it was just like the the scene version of it ended up feeling um better for that moment and but a lot of the I, the nina benny stuff the um you know sunrise i remember dialogue versions of that too and i can't remember exactly what order it went in but it's messy we're just bringing each other new words every day yeah totally i i remember really distinctly um kiara setting up the notion between vanessa and usnavi first one out of the hood buys the other a bottle of champagne and it was a line it was like a line of dialogue we threw into the opening number and then like smash cut to years later when there was a different usnavi vanessa song in act two called goodbye where they're kind of saying goodbye to each other but then i wrote when the sun goes down and i was like these are two sad songs of two couples breaking up like this is getting to be a very <laughs> sad act two um we need to liven it up and so i i ran with the notion that kiara came up with of like oh the bottle of champagne we'll center the song around that and you know vanessa's bringing the bottle of champagne and usnavi's like too obsessed with opening the bottle to like see that she's saying she loves you, you dummy. Um, and and then like and then threading the musical version of that back into the opening number. So like it was very yeah. fluid in terms of what the best idea was. Uh, you know, Tommy Kale, our director, was really good at fostering an environment where the best idea in the room wins, and we all write to that. Yeah, yeah. That's how, everything that's I know what... comes to mind too. That's Nina's big turnaround moment where mm -hmm. Abuela Claudia has passed. And Nina and Usnavi, they're kind of adoptive siblings. They were raised by Abuela Claudia on the block. And um, so they're going through her stuff and they're just looking through, oh, here's your second grade book report. You know, here's these old lotto tickets that she never threw away. And that also kind of became a chicken and an egg that then a whole song comes of like, what do you learn from going from rifling through the old stuff and seeing the child you once were? And yeah. seeing it with different and more mature eyes now so yeah, yeah all these all these um kind of scene and song things they develop organically over time as the idea unfolds wow well i'm uh i'm so excited i'm gonna wrap up this first episode of our special limited podcast series in the heights el suenito please join us tomorrow june 3rd for episode two this has been a production of the my cultura podcast network on iHeartMedia, and we'll see you tomorrow This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart, and I'm very forgiving, but, like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 